Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Bowls with the Bard. My name is Cakes, I am your host, and today for our February episode, we are going to do something a little bit different. If you don't already know, I am on TikTok at 10K Shakespeare, and at the beginning of this year, I challenged myself to go around the canon in 80 days. I will let Michaela of January 1st of 2023 explain to you exactly what that means, but for now, I will let you know what today's episode, or I guess I should say episodes, will entail. So far in 2023, I have made a video about Shakespeare every single day. So episode one of Around the Canon in 80 Days will give you the first 20 episodes that I have filmed. Episode two will give you the second 20 days worth of content. And then after I finish going around the canon on March 21st, I will drop episodes three and four, which will contain two more chunks of 20 videos. Every Around the Canon in 80 Days episode will be around an hour long, and I am so excited to share this journey with you. I have learned so much, and I hope you enjoy taking it with me. But before we start our journey around the canon in 80 days, of course, let me finish this bowl. We've got to get a little high. <laughs> around the canon in 80 days. What does that mean? Between now and March 21st, I am reading all of Shakespeare's works, plays, sonnets, poems, all of it. Every day after I finish my reading, I'm gonna make a small video with thoughts about what I read that day. Today I read Acts 1 and 2 of Romeo and Juliet, and as I read these plays, at least loosely in the order that they were written, I really feel like this is where Shakespeare found his stride. In the big picture, this is not just some of the most beautiful poetry Shakespeare has written so far. It is also some of the most effective in terms of storytelling. It's the most purposeful switching between verse and prose that I've seen so far. The mode of address changes make you think more than previous ones he has written. And the characters, even the smaller ones, feel more fleshed out and human than a lot of main characters in some of Shakespeare's previous plays. Even smaller details like Shakespeare noticing, oh, did the audience laugh really hard at that joke in Love's Labor's Lost where I called Cupid's arrow his butt shaft? Well, I'm gonna have Mercutio say it again. I bet they'll laugh at it again. And you know what I did? I did laugh at it again. The other major thing I noticed while I was reading today is that I have definitely seen this play way more than I have read it. And I had a few little thoughts come up as a result of that. First, I don't know if it's because it gets cut or because not enough attention goes to it because it's only like three lines, but I totally forgot that Lord Capulet and Lord Montague are involved in the fight at the beginning of the play. I think way more emphasis should go to that moment because I think it should be clear that it is not the adults are fighting with words and the kids are fighting with swords. It should be very clear that the kids learned how to do this directly from their parents. 
Second, at least according to the stage directions in the Folger, during the Queen Mab scene, there should be five or six people present who are not Romeo, Mercutio, or Benvolio. I don't know what the purpose of that would be or what it would add to the scene, but I would be so curious to see it happen because I've only ever seen that scene with the three of them. Last and most silly, I just want to know how Shakespeare and or his actors decided where there were going to be scene breaks. Because in Love's Labor's Lost, there is a 30-page scene that could and probably should be like four different scenes. But 2-1 in this play is Mercutio and Benvolio looking for Romeo, and then the top of 2-2 is Romeo responding to the last line of 2-1. I ran out of time. More RNJ tomorrow. <laughs> Today I read Acts 3 through 5 of Romeo and Juliet, and I want to talk a little bit about the parents and parental figures in this play. I'll start with the Montagues because they have less to say. Based on what little texts they get, it seems like they might be slightly better parents than the Capulets. Lord Capulet is involved in the brawl at the beginning of the play, but his biggest chunk of text is him talking to Benvolio, being like, Romeo has been so out of sorts lately, he's been really down, I've tried to talk to him about it, and he just will not talk to me and tell me what's going on. Can you please talk to him and see if he'll talk to you? So it seems like he has a genuine interest in the emotional well-being of his son. Lady Montague only gets two lines, both of which seem to suggest she is really not about the fighting that these two families participate in. And then she dies of grief from Romeo's banishment, which only gets one online, but is really very tragic. I always thought the good parental figures in this play were Friar Lawrence and the nurse. I still feel that way about the nurse. She is the only person who actually listens to Juliet, who actually cares about what Juliet wants, and she strives to help Juliet achieve that until circumstances make it pretty much impossible for her to help her anymore. She only really stops helping Juliet when it would literally be unsafe for Juliet for the nurse to keep pressing for her. Friar Lawrence, I think he does genuinely care about both of these kids. But this read-around, I really saw his ulterior motive of wanting to use this marriage to resolve the conflict between these two families. And I think his desire to do so may have blinded him to better ways of moving forward. I think Lord Capulet is interesting because at the beginning of the play, he seems to be kind of reasonable. At the beginning of the play, he tells Paris that Juliet is too young to get married, maybe in a couple of years, and at their party, he tells Tybalt not to fight Romeo because he's heard he's a good kid. His problem is that he wants to feel like he's doing right by his daughter, he doesn't want to listen to how he could actually do right by his daughter. He agrees to marry Juliet to Paris because he thinks it'll make her feel better, but he hasn't actually spoken to her this entire play to know what she might want. And when Juliet tells him it's not what she wants and his ego is bruised, the violence that is at his core explodes. And I have an entire video I've made about Lady Cap that I will link to in the caption. Today I read Acts 1 through 3 of King John. Before I had ever read this play, it was sold to me as one of the worst in the canon, bottom tier Shakespeare. And I will never understand why, because I adore this play. I made a video I will link to about why I don't think this play gets produced very often, but I think the challenges it presents are workable and I wish more people would take it on. Because King John has a lot to offer. 
First of all, it's really funny. I think the opening plot with Philip coming to King John, swearing that he is his brother's father's son so he can claim land, but leaving swearing that he is not his brother's father's son, outing his mom for having an affair so he can claim a title but not get any land in the process, that is guaranteed to kick your play off with some laughs. I think the following scene in which Philip's mother confronts him about all of this is also very funny, but it's also very sweet in that Philip tells her that he's going to use this new title to ensure that she and her reputation are safe. Literally all of Philip's asides and sassy quips are hilarious. I think you have to work very hard to make it so he is not a crowd pleaser. I think it's silly that when Eleanor finds out that Philip might be her grandson because he's a bastard, she embraces him and loves him and almost flirts with him a little bit. But on the flip side of things, she is using Arthur's supposed bastardy to shame another one of her grandchildren, a very young one at that, and to keep him from claiming the crown. And lastly, the multiple scenes in which King John and King Philip are instructed to be literally holding hands, it's just goofy. The women in this play also rock. Eleanor is using King John as a puppet to govern as she wishes. And unlike in most of Shakespeare's work, at least in the first half of this play, the men seem to have very little to say about that. They seem to kind of respect her. And Constance is the most beautiful personification of grief and valiant motherhood that Shakespeare wrote. Her speeches are stunning. If you've never read them, run, don't walk. I'll finish up King John and check in with more thoughts tomorrow. Today I read Acts 3 through 5 of King John and Act 1 of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Y'all know I am not a fan of Act 5 of King John, but Act 4? Fascinating. I think there are two things Shakespeare does really well here. First, this act has a devastating tragic arc. We go from Arthur successfully talking his way out of being murdered by Hubert, to King John deciding, oh shit, maybe I don't want to kill a kid, to King John learning that Arthur is dead, to Hubert going, JK, Arthur's not dead, and then Arthur dying anyway, and Hubert getting blamed for that death despite not killing him. If Act 4 isn't a gut punch, I don't know what is. The second thing I think he does really well is he further develops these characters. In the first scene, we get to see the product of Arthur spending his whole life surrounded by adults arguing. The kid is wildly persuasive. He has clearly seen and learned how adults get what they want. He definitely also knows he's a kid, that Hubert doesn't want to murder a kid, and he pulls on those heartstrings. But at his end, Shakespeare reminds us that even the smartest kid is still a kid. The way Arthur dies seems foolish, but he's just a baby and he's scared, so he jumps, despite acknowledging moments before that it might break all of his bones. And in this act, we really get to see how King John is lost without his mother. He chooses to kill Arthur and to have a second coronation, and both of those choices piss off his people. He is nothing without Eleanor telling him what to do. I also think it's weird and interesting that we learn about Constance and Eleanor dying in the same line. 
and that John is scripted one very short line on stage alone to feel the loss of his mother. And now a quick gear shift to Midsummer. I only read Act 1 today, and the thing that struck me most is that for a play that we widely consider to be incredibly magical, we only meet the mortals in Act 1. Which then made me ask the question, who is the main character of Midsummer? I've heard good arguments for Helena. Today, I feel like it's Hermia, but I'll be back with more thoughts tomorrow. <laughs> Today, I read Acts 2 through 4 of A Midsummer Night's Dream. This is one of those Shakespeare plays that gets massively overproduced, but of all the Shakespeare plays that are overdone, I think it's the one that deserves it the most. And there are two reasons for that. The first is that I think this is Shakespeare's best use of having multiple revolving plots. This play is a comedy, and I think all three worlds lend themselves very well to that. The characters from plotline to plotline are so vastly different that I think it's easy for audience members to find at least one character they can sink their teeth into. If you're into magic and mythology, then you're going to love Titania and Oberon and Puck and the rest of the fairies. But if you're not into that and you're looking for romance, you've got the lovers and the lovers quarrel. But if that doesn't interest you, you also have the silliness that is the rude mechanicals. The second reason I think this play is justifiably overproduced is because, and maybe this is because of the magic in this play, for whatever reason, people feel licensed to go big and bold with their interpretive choices on this play. On a very basic level, this has meant that I have seen almost every single one of these characters regendered, which means that not only was a woman or non-binary person playing the character, but they were playing that character as a woman or non-binary person instead of as a man. I have seen women play all of the rude mechanicals, a man play Helena, and so many non-binary people play Puck. But beyond messing with gender, I have seen so many exciting and surprising creative choices come out of this play. Years back at the Folger, I saw the Rude Mechanicals played as a troupe of high school theater kids from an all-girls Catholic school. Hilarious. Last year, I saw a production at the Folger that interpreted almost the entire play through the lens of the Black American experience and through Black humor. Also hilarious. A lot of us have seen the brilliant Titania and Oberon swap made famous by the Bridge Theater. And at Shakespeare Theater Company, I watched them pour literal mud on stage for the lovers' quarrel. There are just so many choices you can make with this play that make watching it over and over worth it. Today, I read Act 5 of A Midsummer Night's Dream and Acts 1 and 2 of The Merchant of Venice. Act 5 of Midsummer is Pyramus and Thisbe and Puck's closing monologue, both of which are bangers. I feel like Shakespeare wraps that play up perfectly with lots of laughs and a little bit of wonder. And then there's Merchant. I'm gonna talk about this play tomorrow as well, so I'm not gonna have a ton to say about it today, but I did have one prominent thought while reading the first two acts, and that is that I am tired of consuming stories full of characters who are not likable. I've had this conversation a lot lately surrounding TV shows like The Boys and Ozark that I really want to like because the acting is excellent and most of the writing is amazing, but by season three, 
all of the characters are irredeemable and I have no reason to watch anymore. In this play, if a character doesn't immediately reveal why they're an asshole, it only takes a second scene for that problem to arise. The only characters this isn't completely true for are Portia and Nerissa. I've seen interesting things done with early Portia, like having her be interested in one of the suitors before Bassanio, so you really get to feel and empathize with the lack of agency she has. But knowing what she's gonna do at the end of the play, I don't really care what choices you can make to have your audience empathize with her. I suppose you could be saying something about how it's the people you least expect who can cause the most harm, but honestly, if that is the lesson you're trying to teach, I would rather learn it from a different story. One that isn't so blatantly anti-Semitic. I don't know, the more time I spend with this play, the less I want to have to spend time with this play. I'm only really interested in sitting with it at this point if the people molding the storytelling are Jewish creators. I'll be back with more Merchant tomorrow. Honestly, I don't know if I'll have much more to say about it because it only gets worse from here. Today, I read Acts 3 through 5 of The Merchant of Venice. And thank you for doing this because the Portia as a girl boss take, it is tired. The way I see it, the most girl boss thing she maybe does, and I say maybe because this isn't fully textually supported, is she maybe tells Bassanio, or at least hints to Bassanio, what chest to pick so she can marry who she wants to marry instead of marrying who her father tries to force her to marry through some ridiculous test. But I think the main reason Portia is typically seen as a girl boss or a feminist icon is because of the courtroom scene. I think if in this scene we got all the way up to the point where she realizes, oh shoot, you can take some of his flesh but you can't take a drop of blood. And then from that point, she was like, but you can have the money that you're owed and now you can go home then maybe Portia would be a feminist icon or a girl boss. Through the entirety of this play, the men speak absolute vitriol to and about Shylock, but it is undeniably Portia's actions that have the most negative impact on that man. The most palatable version of Portia I've seen does what she does in the courtroom scene because she sees Bassanio and Antonio kiss and it spirals her into a rage. And then after the courtroom scene, she and Nerissa have a moment on stage to silently kind of process what happened now that they've calmed down and to clearly feel guilty about it. But my problem with that is it isn't textually supported, so there is no moment for her to out loud express remorse or make any kind of amends. And then I think the ring plot is just kind of dumb. I don't see how the way it plays out could read as feminist. I just don't really see the point. I don't know. I feel like I have seen a version of this play that was produced as thoughtfully as humanly possible and it's still just kind of read as trauma porn. Like, it was just a lot to take in, and at the end, I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to have learned or gotten out of it. If that is the best this play can be, I'd rather watch Jewish stories written by Jewish playwrights. I am glad to be done with this play, and I will be back with some Henry IV action tomorrow. Today, I read Act 1, Scene 1 through Act 3, Scene 2 of Henry IV, Part 1, and instead of sharing my thoughts today, I want to ask y'all for your recommendations. 
The first time I read this play, I loved it, but since then I've seen a couple productions that put a bad taste in my mouth. But as I'm reading it again for the first time in like six years, I'm really enjoying it. I'm fairly certain the reason I haven't liked this play on stage is not because it's a bad play, but is because I have seen some really bad productions of it. I've never really seen a strong Falstaff, a strong Hotspur, or a strong Hal. And I don't think I've ever seen a successful approach to the humor in this play. So please hit me with your recommendations of bangin' filmed productions. Not The Hollow Crown, not because I don't like it, I'm just looking more for filmed stage productions. Bonus points if the cast is diverse, because I'm pretty sure I've only ever seen this play with a bunch of white dudes on stage, and I don't think that helps. I can't wait to see what y'all bring to the table, and I will be back with more Henry IV Part 1 tomorrow. Today I read Act 3, Scene 3, through to the end of Henry IV Part 1. I feel like between writing the Henry VI plays and writing this play, Shakespeare learned that it's not just about having a great story, it's about having a wide array of characters that your audience can connect with. Because the main characters in Henry IV Part 1 feel so much more human than most of the main characters in the Henry VI plays, it never feels like they have moments where they're just existing to drive the plot forward. But yesterday I talked a little bit about how I've never really seen a great production of this on stage, so I want to talk a little bit about the pitfalls I think the three main characters can fall into. First, I think you have a major problem if you have a Hal who does not have swagger. It shouldn't feel like Hal is above Falstaff and the gang, and we shouldn't immediately start to see little peaks of the princely person he may become. I want to see and enjoy the hot rebel that is Hal. And honestly, at the end, I want to be disappointed that this is what coming of age looks like for him. If you play a princely Hal from the top, it is boring. Please don't do that. For Hotspur, I think it's important to remember that there is a difference between shouting and intensity. Hotspur is stubborn, and there are definitely moments that are right for shouting, but I think it's important to remember that there is also power in quiet intensity. Find moments where you can have different levels. And lastly, if your production requires your actors to be memorized, your Falstaff must be able to remember his words for the entire run. Falstaff is a tricky character because he is very funny and it is possible to get your audience to love him, but boy are his lines wordy. You have to find an actor who knows their words and knows what those words mean so well that they can perfectly illuminate that meaning to the audience. Otherwise, most of the humor in this play is gone. If your Falstaff literally can't remember their words, this play is dead in the water. I'll be back with Henry IV Part Two tomorrow. Today, I read Acts 1 through 4 of Henry IV Part Two, and ugh. This was the history I was looking least forward to reading. I was hoping it would prove me wrong, but it really didn't. Yesterday, when I read Part 1, I said this is the first history where it really feels like Shakespeare understood that it's not just about having a good plot, it's about having a wide range of well-rounded characters that your audience can relate to. 
And in part two, it feels like he went overboard and forgot that he had to drive to the end of a plot. The Falstaff scenes in this play are so unnecessarily long. And I know that's because he would have been an audience favorite at the time this was written, but in 2023, for the average theatergoer, I feel like he is very much not. Both his jokes and the way that he speaks are very much of his time. And it's a bummer that Shakespeare got hung up on the Falstaff plots, because at the end of reading part one yesterday, I was like, ah yes, this ending screams that there is more to the story. And the scenes that focus in on continuing the story that was told in part one are excellent. Like, I think the way that Shakespeare writes King Henry in this play is far more compelling than part one. He has two deservedly iconic scenes in this play. I just wish it was shorter. I wish Shakespeare had cut all the fluff and that we could easily do this play in one act and then just staple it on to part one. Tomorrow I read act five and then move on to Much Ado About Nothing, which I am psyched for. I'll see you then for more Around the Canon in 80 Days. Today I read act five of Henry IV part two and acts one and two of Much Ado About Nothing. And before I dive too deep into Much Ado About Nothing, I want to talk about a couple thoughts I had that connect both of these plays. The first is silly, and it's just that by the time I finished reading Henry IV Part II, I was like, oh my god, I hate prose. And then Much Ado came around and pleasantly reminded me that no, I don't hate prose. I hate some kinds of prose. And my second thought is that the induction for Henry IV Part II might be better suited for the beginning of Much Ado. The induction is given by a character called Rumor, and it is about just that, rumors. And while rumor is present in Henry IV Part II, in that they talk about like how many numbers the other side might have, I feel like rumors and gossip are so much more present in Much Ado About Nothing. If nothing else, it's just interesting that Shakespeare wrote both of these plays next to each other. I would love to know what happened in his life that had rumors on his mind. And now I want to talk a little bit about the top of Much Ado and how it applies to the rest of the play. Because I think an element of this play that gets overshadowed and underplayed a lot is the fact that these young men have just come back from war. The start of this play is supposed to be a period of time in which real war ends and the merry war of wits between Beatrice and Benedict begins. But I think focusing in on where the men have just come from helps to explain where some of Claudio's behavior comes from, definitely does not excuse it, but does explain it a little bit. For me, perhaps a little bit of PTSD helps to explain why he is so quick to intense emotions whenever he feels like he has been wronged. I also understand why if Claudio and Don John trusted each other during literal life or death situations in war times, now Claudio would be more apt to believe Don John than Hero, who he just met, especially if he seemingly had evidence. I don't know, I think the war element of this play is something that can be easily thrown away, but I think that that's a mistake. I think it's much more important than people realize. I'll be back with more Much Ado About Nothing tomorrow. Today I read Acts 3 through 5 of Much Ado About Nothing, and the structure of this play is just mwah, excellent. 
Shakespeare does such a good job of making things light and fun at the top, and of not only getting us invested in these characters, but making us fall in love with them. So by the time shit hits the fan and we get the wedding explosion and the kill Claudio moment between Beatrice and Benedict, we care deeply about what is happening to these characters. And I think as we produce this play today, we are finding that that causes problems with how the audience sits with the ending. Because it's technically a happy ending, but we don't really get to hear how Hero feels about all of it. So my question for today, particularly for my director friends out there, is how do you deal with the Claudio and Hero plot? Do you remove some of the comedy from the end and intentionally make it feel uncomfortable? Do you pull back on the intensity of the wedding scene so it feels like Claudio is forgivable? In the public theater's production that was filmed for PBS, Margaret Odette's hero got to slap Claudio during their reunion scene. I think that choice is incredibly effective, but I also think it can't be the only solution to this problem. I don't know. I'm excited to hear your thoughts about Hero and Claudio, and I will be back tomorrow with some Henry V action. Today I read Acts 1 through 3 of Henry V, and it is a shame this place starts the way that it does. The prologue is fine. Oh for a Muse of Fire is an iconic line that's going to get your audience's ears to perk up a little bit. But the scene and a half that follow are examples of what I think are the worst parts of the histories, which are scenes mostly made up of long monologues that feature lists of names and titles that justify why a monarch can lay claim to a patch of land. Like the least exciting thing for an audience and pretty much guaranteed to make them tune out. That sucks as a way to set the tone for this play because Henry V rocks. The characters are so much fun, the pacing is excellent, and the speeches are fire. And for me, as I'm sure it will shock no one who has followed me for a while, the best part of this play is just how many ways you can successfully interpret it. I've been in it twice, I played Catherine both times, Polar opposite experiences. It can be a propaganda piece glorifying the shit out of Henry V, or it can be a commentary on the perils of colonialism. One of the coolest parts for me is that I think you could play the character of Henry the exact same way from version to version and still make the point you are trying to make using the characters that surround him. Obviously you can play Henry in different ways, but Boy, would I love to see a production of this play where they blocked two different stagings, but Henry stays the exact same for both of them. I love this play and I will be back with more of it and a little bit of As You Like It tomorrow. Today I read Acts 4 and 5 of Henry V and Act 1 of As You Like It. I had three main and kind of personal thoughts about Henry V today. The first is that it's fun to come back to this play after reading Edward III for the first time. They talk about Edward, the Black Prince of Wales, a lot in Henry V, and it's nice to have kind of an idea of who that character is. Second, I have been in this play twice. The first time I played Catherine, the boy, and Bates, 
and the second time I played Catherine and the chorus. Reading the play over the last couple of days made me realize that I am hyper familiar with several scenes in this play, but almost none of them feature Henry. It was fun to revel in the famous speeches he has that I maybe don't know as well as I should. And lastly, the first time I did this show, like, God, five or six years ago at this point, we did it Hatsfields versus McCoy's style. The idea was that this play glorifies violence because of the grand, famous people committing the violence, but once you take that violence and put it in the hands of poorer people, maybe that violence is no longer seen as glorious? Hmm, why is that? But because we did it Hatsfields versus McCoy style, we all spoke with Appalachian accents. And over the last couple of days, I learned that despite having done a whole other production of Henry V since being in this Appalachian Henry V, I cannot read this play without those accents. And honestly, I kind of love that and hope it never changes. And now transitioning into As You Like It, I feel like my read today made me realize that this is just as much Orlando's story as it is Rosalind's. Like, obviously, if you looked at line count or asked who the one main character in this play is, it would be Rosalind. But Orlando starts the play, and we get so much of his backstory. I really think similarly to Beatrice and Benedict, Shakespeare wanted us to care about these two characters equally. I'll be back with more As You Like It tomorrow. Today I read Acts 2 through 4 of As You Like It. This is my favorite play of all time, not just Shakespeare play, like all plays. And for whatever reason, going into reading it, I was so nervous that I was gonna get to the end of it and I wasn't gonna feel that way anymore. So not the case. Both days that I've read it so far, I have had to stop myself from reading ahead. This is a green world play, which means the main characters start in one world, but enter another world to resolve the main conflicts. Very frequently in Shakespeare, this means a forest. Sometimes it means a magical one, less so in this play. With that in mind, I was noticing three kind of categories of characters and how they behave differently. First, you get the pastoral characters, the characters who assumingly have always lived in the Forest of Arden. They tend to be more simple characters and their reasons for doing things the way that they do them lies in practicality. Then you get the court characters who behave the way that they do because of the societal structures that they value so much. And then for me, you have an in-between in Duke Senior and his men, these people who have lived in the court, but who have now been forced to also live in the forest. In particular today, the scene between Touchstone and Corin struck me. It's a scene where both of them are seemingly trying to understand where the other one comes from, but they both walk away from the scene not really being able to do that. And as somebody who grew up in Draper, Utah, but then spent the last 10 years in Washington, DC, it just felt very familiar to me. Like, Touchstone is so smug. He goes as far as calling Corin's work a sin without recognizing that Corin's work is probably what puts food on his table. And Corin is completely uninterested in manners, which to me reads as a disinterest in knowing how he could respect people who are different from him. 
But Duke Sr., although I admit still has a touch of smugness to him, he has been forced to live in this pastoral life for a chunk of time. For me, he is also the most hospitable person in the entire play and the one who is most likely to hear you out before he makes a decision. Just thought that was interesting. I'll be back with more As You Like It and Julius Caesar tomorrow. Today I read Act 5 of As You Like It and Acts 1 and 2 of Julius Caesar, and yes, this, the green world effect, is real in As You Like It. The main conflicts are solved in the Forest of Arden, and I think an argument can be made that both Rosalind and Orlando go through significant changes in that they make discoveries about their gender identity and sexuality. But it goes beyond that because the two main villains experience major character shifts at the end of this play. Orlando's brother Oliver shows remorse for how he treated him at the beginning of the play and ends up marrying Celia, and Duke Frederick enters the forest, comes across religious people, converts, and decides to give the dukedom back to Duke Sr. For a play with no magical characters, The Forest of Arden certainly is magical in and of itself. And now to transition into a little Julius Caesar. Shakespeare just aced the character work in this play. I'm only two acts in, we've barely met Antony yet, but it is already so clear who Caesar, Brutus, and Cassius are. Caesar thinks so highly of himself, and he refuses to let people see him for his flaws. We have a moment where he essentially says, I have reason to fear Cassius, but I don't actually fear him. And in one of my favorite lines, when it's suggested that Caesar might have the falling sickness, Cassius responds and is like, nah, Caesar doesn't have the falling sickness, we all have the falling sickness. Which I think shows that everyone around Caesar knows that this is a character flaw of his. Cassius is so good at plotting and organizing this plan. He is so persuasive, but in action? Mm, not as strong. It's like he's worried about legitimacy if he is the face of the movement, so he lets Brutus take the reins, and that is a mistake. Because Brutus is obsessed with remaining honorable. It takes a lot of soul-searching for Brutus to finally get on board with this plan, and when he does, he refuses to swear an oath that he's going to do it, I think because he doesn't want anybody to be able to say that he broke an oath if he backs out. I also think the wives in Act 2 are fascinating. Portia just wants to know what's going on. Calpurnia, without knowing what's going on, wants to stop it. I ran out of time, but I'll be back with more Julius Caesar tomorrow. Today I read Acts 3 through 5 of Julius Caesar, and I know I typically sound like a broken record when I say Shakespeare wrote plays, not books, that his works were meant to be seen and heard, not read. But I think Julius Caesar might be the exception to the rule. I read this play for the first time when I was a sophomore in high school. It was the first time I ever read a Shakespeare play on my own, and I enjoyed it. It didn't totally scare me away from Shakespeare. I've read this play several times since then, and time and time again, I walk away feeling like it was worth the read. I think the four main characters are fascinating. They all feel very human, but in their own distinct ways. I think the story itself is incredibly compelling. And I think the rhetoric and language that Shakespeare used in this play is so excellent, you want to go back and study it. 
but at the same time, the language isn't so dense that a high schooler would have a hard time understanding it. I wish all of that translated as incredibly onto the stage, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't. And that is not me saying this play is bad on stage by any means. It just doesn't work quite as well on stage as some of Shakespeare's other plays. Like, I've never walked away from a production of Julius Caesar absolutely hating it. But I've also never walked away from one feeling like pumped and energized and like, this is why we do Shakespeare 400 years later. And I have felt that way about productions of a lot of the other plays that get produced as frequently as Julius Caesar does. I think there are two big reasons for that. The first is that it's almost undeniable that the most exciting moment that's going to happen on stage is going to happen before intermission. And the second is that after that climactic moment, there is a total tonal shift that I think is very hard for an audience to reconcile. It really does feel like acts one through three and acts four and five are two totally different plays. I know it would mean the play would have no resolution, but I'd almost rather watch Acts 1 through 3 by themselves. I'll be back with Hamlet tomorrow, and I am terrified to read that in two days. Today I read Act 1 through Act 3, Scene 1 of Hamlet, and this play is a lot. Like, it's a lot lengthwise. Today and tomorrow, I am reading between 20 and 30 pages more than I have for any other day of this project so far. This play is a lot in that the language is dense, and it is a lot in terms of just how heavy the content can feel. That being said, I had one small aha moment while reading today and one broader thought that kind of stuck with me. My aha moment was that the first time Hamlet and Horatio interact at the top of the play, it's an introduction. It seems like they maybe knew of each other before this moment, but they've never officially met. I've always thought of Horatio as Hamlet's, like, best friend and right-hand man, and I'm not sure how I've missed that before. It definitely made me question whether I respect Horatio more or less for being there for someone he barely knows in the capacity that he does it. And I don't know if I have an answer to that question yet, it just got me thinking. My broader thought was that when this play is produced on stage, Finding the moments of comedy is crucial, and they are absolutely there, but I think sometimes we get so conceptual with things that we, like, bury the funny moments underneath whatever it is we're trying to say. Like, even while I was reading, I was asking myself the question, do we play Polonius as funny, or do we make a commentary with him about how he's over-involved and way too much in everybody's business and not a very good dad? But then I got to Polonius's line after one of the players delivers a monologue in which Polonius says, that was too long. And Polonius, of all people having that line, is intentional. We are meant to laugh at how long-winded and oblivious Polonius is. I think if we really want to enjoy this play and we want to care about what happens at the end of it, moments of laughter are necessary. Maybe not as many as the top of Romeo and Juliet, but they have to be there. I'll be back with more Hamlet tomorrow. Today I read Act 3, Scene 3 through to the end of Hamlet and had two major thoughts come up. 
The first was that this play reminds me a little bit of Romeo and Juliet in that the older generation or the parent generation completely failed the younger generation. Ophelia, for example, by the standards of the time she was written in, Ophelia is a picture-perfect daughter. She does what she's told, probably to a fault, and even when Polonius is totally off base, she never pushes back. So when Polonius dies, it makes sense to me that Ophelia goes mad, because the one person who would have given her step-by-step -step instructions of how to live her life is now gone. And he's gone at the hands of probably the only person who allowed Ophelia to feel a sense of personal freedom. I think if Polonius had given Ophelia slightly more room to make her own choices, she maybe wouldn't have ended the way that she did. I think quite possibly this whole play could be avoided if Gertrude and Claudius gave Hamlet the room to feel his feelings about their marriage, maybe even validated those feelings a little bit, or maybe if Gertrude took the time to explain to Hamlet why she married Claudius. But instead they play this game of I can't fathom why he's acting this way. And even the ghosty ghost of Hamlet Sr. fails Hamlet. If you have sent your son out to avenge your murder, if you want him to be taken seriously, if you don't want him to be seen as mad and for there to be consequences for that, maybe don't appear to your son but not appear to your ex-wife? I don't know, I just don't think that ends up being very helpful. Anyway, my second major thought was that I usually relate to the character of Hamlet as being stuck in a place of inaction. But this time I only related to him that way during my reading yesterday through Act 3, Scene 2. Once Hamlet kills Polonius, he spirals, he can't stop acting, and everything he does is a bad decision. I know Friar Lawrence screws up in the end, but I just kept wishing that Hamlet had a figure like that in his life. Hamlet just needs an emotionally regulated adult. I can't believe I read this play in two days. I will be back tomorrow with Merry Wives of Windsor. Today I read Act 1, Scene 1 through Act 3, Scene 2 of The Merry Wives of Windsor, and this play makes me feel conflicted. Because I think you could argue that this is the most fun, least high-stakes play in Shakespeare's canon. There aren't a ton of deep statements you can say with it, so I think the goofy choices you can make are endless. Once in a class I was taking, one of my best friends and I put on our most overdramatic New York accents and played it like we were the Real Housewives of Windsor. If I can find the video before tomorrow, I'll post it, but I digress. Anyway, for as fun as this play can be, I think it is also tricky. Because the scenes with the Merry Wives, with Mistress Ford and Mistress Page, they are excellent, but they are few and far between. You would think a play called The Merry Wives of Windsor would be about them, but I'm on Act 3, Scene 2, and they have only been in three scenes. And they've only been the focal point of one of them. Which makes it so the characters who feel like they should be the side characters are all also leads. They kind of drive the story. And pretty much all of those characters are riddled with my least favorite kind of prose. It's got language that is more difficult to understand, and it's riddled with references that modern audiences are very likely never gonna get. And on top of that, several of those characters are supposed to be speaking with thick 
accents. So I think if you want to be successful with this play, you have to find the places where you can give this prose a big ol' haircut. But I think you also have to cast actors who are incredibly skilled in three places. First, and I think most importantly, they need to be excellent at making it clear to the audience what they are saying. Second, they need to be good comedians, both physically and in terms of timing. And lastly, the actors who have to do accents have to not only be good at them, but be good at making sure the audience can understand them. If you can hire actors who can do that, you don't have to worry as much about the other plots because they're funny on their own. I'll be back with more Merry Wives tomorrow. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow Bulls with the Bard on the handles either on your screen or in the description. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps Bulls with the Bard so much. And tune in next week as we talk with Jake Maisel, the artistic director of Baked Shakespeare, about all the stoner Shakespearean fun they are having down in Cape Town, South Africa. Until then, bye all. A thousand thousand sighs to save all Lay me where sad true lover Never find my grave to weep there